Support comes from Datadog. Datadog integrates seamlessly with container technologies like Docker and Kubernetes, so you can monitor your entire container cluster in real time. See across all your servers, containers, apps, and services in one place with powerful visualizations, sophisticated alerting, distributed tracing, and APM. And now log management is generally available in Datadog, so you can unify your logs, metrics, and distributed request traces in one platform. Start monitoring your microservices today with a free trial. As a bonus, Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. Visit dd.netrocks.com to get started. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And Michelle Rubastamante is here today with us, which is always going to be a good show. And just a word of warning, she always ends every show with a dirty joke. So if there are sensitive children, grandmothers in the room, please ask them to go somewhere else. It's going to be an hour from now, but you know, it will it happen. It will be an hour from now, but just so you you're aware. Be prepared. It's not going to come out of nowhere. We're not going to sneak up on you. Yeah. <laughs> How are you, buddy? I'm good, man. I, you know, plunking away. It's still winter time here for some reason. Got a burst of snow. It's actually 57 degrees today. Wow. We were recording this way ahead of time. It's like still February 20th when we recorded right. this. So it's coming out a month later. Yeah. We had a little snow and then it turned just like all melted away. Good. Enough about the weather. Let's get to Better Know a Framework. All right. <laughs> What you got? This is a really cool and concise and amazing, awesome guide that actually Michelle's company, Salliance, did for Microsoft and hmm. our friend Joel Hewlin from AppV Next, previously from AppV Next, now he works with Salliance, he worked on it quite a bit. So this is the Azure Data Architecture Guide. It presents a structured approach for designing data-centric solutions on Microsoft Azure based on proven practices derived from customer engagements. It's very, very cool. What would you build on Azure that isn't data-centric? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, <laughs> any kind of long-running process that has to deal with particular type of file that isn't particularly data, maybe it's binary data. That's still yeah. data, though, isn't it? Yeah, it's all data in the end. <laughs> You know, you have you want to do a microservices architecture system. You need some guidance. This is the first thing you should read. Nice. Yep. And from the company that produced our guest. That's right. How about that? How about that? That's what I got. Go read it. Learn it. Love it. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1493, one we did with Kendra Havens. We're talking about Docker tools for .NET Core, you know, oh, speaking yeah. of containers and services and all these good things. Got a bunch of good comments on there. And, and Kendra Dovin and uh, respond to a bunch of them. This is particular comment comes from Nier, who said, that's N-I-R, Nier. Hi, great episode and a very interesting topic. My team is doing a proof of concept using Docker containers for testing of components in our product. They're trying to figure out how to do Visual Studio debugging on non.NET Core applications. Is that possible with the tooling today? And if it's not, what's the recommended way to go about it? And Kendra had actually mentioned, you know, you, you mentioned .NET Core specifically. So, yes, you can definitely, he said non.NET Core, but if he's using regular .NET, .NET Framework, all the way back to as far back as 3.5, Visual Studio debugging works just fine. But non.NET apps, say C++ or Python in Docker containers with Visual Studio, not part of the tooling. And there's, there's really no simple solutions to that. You're going to have to do debugging the old-fashioned way. Yeah. So, Nier, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we're reading on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We generate life guidance white papers from random sequences of words in them. That didn't seem that random, but okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> just don't follow the advice. <laughs> it's just a joke, people. What is that? Please don't sue me. <laughs> Cat blender toothpaste. No, don't do that. I'm trying to stay quiet over here. That's just like, what? 
What? <laughs> yeah, no. If you can't, if you can't get your daily surreal from Carl Franklin, who can you get it from? They expect that because I can't do anything funny, so I might as well be weird. <laughs> Let's introduce Michelle formally. Michelle Larue Bustamante, of course, has probably been on the show more than just about anybody else. She's a founder and CIO of Saliance, which you can find at saliance.net. S O L L I A N C E. Also founder of Snapboard.com, a Microsoft Regional Director and Microsoft Azure MVP. Additionally, she's been awarded Azure Elite and Azure Insider status, as well as the ASP.NET Insider designation. Michelle is a thought leader, recognized in many fields, including software architecture and design, identity and access management, cloud computing technologies, security and compliance and DevOps. And there's like at least that much more to her bio, but you'll have to go and read that at .netrocks.com. Welcome back. Hey. Hey. That's a mouthful. I got to count a 20 shows for you. Oh, wow. And five of them are panels. So yeah. I think you're one of my favorite panelists. I think we have a lot of fun on panels. Those are the best. We do. Absolutely. They are the best. The best is when you can collaborate on the discussion, right? <laughs> yeah. Collaborate slash whatever that means. I think you, you count in my, you know, when I'm building a panel, obviously I need several people that all have opinions around a subject area, preferably that are different. But I also look at temperament somewhat. Are they able to conflict in useful ways? Like you don't right. want somebody too bombast. If you put Oren Eni on a panel, yeah, you pretty much have to put him against, you know, Ted Newert. There's nobody else. You need a Paula <laughs> Abdul and a Simon Cowell. Uh, yeah. You just can't have two Simon Cowells. Yeah. Well, or yeah, I kind of feel like you got to put up two Simon Cowles against each other and let them knock it out. Just call oh, it a, well, <laughs> a, a blood match, right? You know, what I like about you, Michelle, as a panelist is that I think you calibrate your responses and your way of communicating to the fellow panelists. Hmm. So I've seen you be quite bombastic. Yeah. The thing about a panel, though, is that you, you know, I always take away something from a panel that I can learn, too. Mm -hmm. There's usually a lot of, you know, big brains involved with different experiences. So it's really fun to be able to share experiences you have, but mm -hmm. you don't know everything. So I, I just really enjoy that because there's always something in it for me, too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, nobody knows everything. That's the whole point, right? Right. Michelle, how did the Azure Data Architecture Guide come about? Well, Zoiner, my co-founder, alongside Brian Noyes, is, you know, a big part of that, right? He's the big data guy, pretty much, right? For yeah. for Salience and all up Azure. So we have a whole team around these different practices that we have. You know, I run security with Brock Allen, we have microservices practice and and then we've got big data practice and analytics practice and AI practice and all kinds of cloud and DevOps practices now. So, you know, essentially we each sort of drive different things and Zoiner is definitely, you know, the one who spearheaded that guy. Hmm. So, so for me, you know, you talked about having microservices, everything requires data and you need to start with your understanding of data and query patterns on one side. And then, of course, there's the middle tier, which is the compute tier, which is where I've always specialized, right? So you kind of need expertise across the different things to come together for any yeah. solution. And microservices is no different. How did the customer experiences play in? Were those your customers, Microsoft's customers, a uh, little of both? I think it's a combination usually, right? We do a lot of yeah. work with, with Microsoft. We do a lot of work with enterprise. So yeah, it, it's across the board for sure. Awesome. Yeah. It reminds me of the patterns and practices group they used to publish on occasion, you know, do it this way if this is right. what you're trying to do. Right. And, you know, to be honest, some of those were hit or miss, but I appreciate that experience being distilled into documents and people right. able to review them. It's good stuff. Well, it's something of a handbook, right, to give out to customers. So when they're looking to get started, especially at the high level, C-level, architect level, leadership level, they need something to put their hands around. And we also wrote a security playbook driven by the same group or, you know, some different folks have had input into it Yeah. for the same reason, right? Looking at corporate security, corporate enterprise security, which again is a whole different category of work from identity and access management type of security, which, you know, my team works on. So there's just so many areas that are involved with complete solutions and running an enterprise that, you know, it gets very interesting very fast today in terms of the need for different expertise. Yeah, it just seems like there's so many forces at work building stuff at Microsoft. Azure changes every day. It's, it's boggling. 
Well, yeah. So I used to call that the Azure avalanche, right? And before that, I called it the technology avalanche. I mean, there was a time when I could do a one-day workshop and cover everything from Visual Studio, new C-sharp features, you know, new front-end features, new ASP.NET features, new data features, security features, and then cloud. And that was like a full day and you covered everything. Now, hmm. every single one of those categories is its own avalanche, right? Azure included. <laughs> yeah. And now if you even slice away just the microservices features on Azure or beyond, it's its own avalanche, right? So Everything is literally an avalanche of information now. And that's why I love so much that I get to work with people that specialize in each of those areas because one person can no longer really be the only guide or mentor to a company, right? You need to fold in people that know stuff you don't and de-risk projects with that information. So I pretty much get to do that on a day-to-day basis and it's it's fun because, you know, I don't feel like I have to know everything anymore because if I don't know it, somebody else in my team does or somebody else in our other extended teams do, right? So it's 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 really rewarding, yeah. right? Once you admit you don't know it all, it's pretty awesome. Discerning who's qualified to have an opinion is actually a good talent in and of itself and very valuable, yeah. especially, you know, in this day and age, there's so much misinformation. Well, and, and that's where like the lead ar- architect type position kind of comes in, right? I kind of find that while I may have my areas where I deep dive, probably the biggest value I bring day to day is that overarching understanding of architecture and the ability to bring in people that know more than me on specific right. verticals within those architectures. So, you know, that's a role, right? That's a, a key function to a large solution. Yeah, you do want to pull all the bits together. You don't want to be the center of everything. Right. It's too much work. You're never going to do it all well. Right, exactly. Better to dole it out and have the different folks work on the different things. Even if sleep is optional. Uh, well, it always has been for you, hasn't it? It's the best eight hours of the week. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> I've been around too long <laughs> to admit that anymore. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> Now I'm just tired. Really effing busy. Yeah. <laughs> really effing busy. Yeah. You know, you know, isn't it funny though, culturally, if you think back, there was a time when, you know, sweatshops were the thing and the more you worked was like a rite of passage. It was a badge of honor. And I really think that there was a period of time in the nineties and, you know, maybe early two thousands where that was the thing. That was the theme. New startups had that theme and and in general, individuals had that theme in terms of how they felt their value, you know, was rated. And today it's more about if you're the guy that has free time and balance of some sort in your life and still gets a job done, then you're doing something right. Yeah. So there's a different culture today that, that I'm observing, even with the companies I work with, like where they, you know, their people go home on the weekend. And I remember back in the day, I would be like, what? You've got a deadline on Monday yeah. and you're going home now? What? <laughs> and and it would almost be in my head. I caught myself thinking like, okay, whatever, turns your crank. But the truth is, that's pretty cool, right? When you when you see that companies endorse that and realize that, hey, you know, you guys, it's Friday, right? It's time to go. You got to go see your family and we'll just pick it up Monday and continue. Not that deadlines aren't important, but that they put a higher value on the family. And that's that's really pretty great. I've had this idea recently, and I don't know if you guys agree with me or not, that, you know, in the, the America was built, and I know this is an international show, but at least our country was really built and grew with the advent of manufacturing, right? And we still do a lot of manufacturing. We just don't involve that many people anymore, which is unfortunate. But if you want to think about the new manufacturing, it's really about content, digital content creation, Mm -hmm. whether that's audio, video, software, digital assets. I mean, it sort of is, isn't it? In in going forward, that's where the growth is. Even before that, because that's the end result, but before that is the software that drives it. And that's why, in general, there's such a desperation for the number of programmers that are being produced not being enough to meet the future need, right? Because everything right. runs on code. And yeah. when people talk about diversity and reaching new groups, part of the initiative there is is far beyond diversity itself, even though that's, of course, very important. But it's about we need more numbers, sheer numbers to yeah. support the future. Right. There needs to be more programmers. Yeah. Yeah. 
and and then look at across the complexity of solution. I mean, when I started, I love to tell the story of Hello World 1992, you know, when I first started, and I built one big thing and, you know, you coded up your C++ app and hit compile and went away for three hours and came back and hoped it was done. And now one big thing, you know, the new Hello World is essentially, oh, yeah, there's these three browsers and these mobile devices and this web app and that mobile app and then these APIs and these back end data stores and these different data stores and these processes that run in the back end. And your Hello World picture is now, you know, 25 moving parts. And that's day one. Mm. So how does somebody, you know, kind of get their head around that starting coding today? They have to start somewhere. But that somewhere is only one small piece of now a much bigger immediate puzzle that has to get put together, right? That was a very, very good segue into the microservices survival mode topic Ah. that we're talking about today, isn't it? Almost by accident, too. Really? How do these things happen? (laughs) Yeah, really. I suddenly had a vision of what happens when Hello World involves the whole world. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean Hello World. It makes me think about Stephen Wright. You can't have everything. Where would you put it? Yeah. Ba-dum-bum. Nice. So how do we navigate this morass of microservices in this decomposed world? I think that's a very good question. I mean, if you want to look at it from a very simplistic view, right, the end result being that things are broken into the microservice, never mind how we got there, but the end result being that we've broken things into microservice, you know, style components, indeed does allow a team or a small team or even an individual to focus on one vertical stack, one thing that is a moving part with a whole bunch of other things. You need the expertise of somebody who understands distributed systems and architecture and you know design practices and domains and so on to break it up and get there and to build the communication between those things. But the individual microservice itself could in theory be the thing that enables the new developer today to have an attainable goal that only requires knowing this one piece. And so that's kind of an interesting thing. I actually swear to you, I did not automatically say to that on purpose. I was just thinking out loud, but The truth is that is probably a side benefit for the newcomer, right? Because they could think about joining a company and building one piece of a bigger puzzle and not have to worry Mm -hmm. about all that knowledge of distributed systems. Whereas in the past, if you got involved in a client server architecture in the DCOM days, if you didn't know what you were doing, building those client components that talked to the server, you could crash the whole application, right? You you know, greedy clients holding on to connections not understanding multi-threading, et cetera, right? So it actually would simplify things, wouldn't it? Just a little. Yeah, absolutely. Sure would. But it's the road to get there that's the hard part, right? I'm with you. And I'm wondering how many people are technically, quote, doing microservices without knowing they're doing microservices. I think the label has a problem that nobody is willing to say, I'm doing this. Well, I think the the term is so overloaded. Nobody wants to hear it anymore, or at least there's large groups of people that just feel like, oh, here we go again, microservices, right? Yeah. And the truth is, you know, this is one of the things that I, I, I like to talk about when I do this surviving microservices presentation. I've performed it as a keynote a couple of times. It's evolving as I go, but it's really a, a collection of perspectives along the road from, are we going to do this or not? What does it mean to do it? What are my reasons for doing it? All the way through to delivery, right? In production. And Hmm. there's an awful lot of steps along that road. But if you kind of step away from all of the theories, right? And the glamorous terms and just think through what are we trying to accomplish? Mm -hmm. Then the first step is you have to figure out why am I doing this at all, right? What is the problem in the business I'm trying to solve to change what we have today or to build this thing we're thinking of building? And why is microservice even a consideration, right? Like that's step one. I have a pretty good metaphor, Michelle, maybe you'd like this, is that if you had an application, let's say it's a complex application, and there's, you know, maybe there's 10 methods and they they each do something cyclomatic and, you know, some of them take longer to do than others, right? Wouldn't it be nice if I could say, well, that method right there that is taking a long time, let me run that on that computer and then throw like 15 more CPUs at it, right? Exactly. And I could just do that. Yeah. That's really what we're talking about. We take pieces of a big system 
that require more resource power, whether it's memory, whether it's time, whether it's compute power, and we move them off to a separate thing that we can control and we can turn up and down. Isn't that a pretty good metaphor? I think that's one piece of the puzzle, right? One is the manageability of features. The other is the ability to distribute those features for the scale properties or load properties that it requires, or even reuse properties. That's another one. But I think there's another piece, which is, you know, the concept of domains in the business and the ability to update applications or specific areas or features of an application with the pace that's necessary with the right team that understands the domain to deliver those features more quickly to make money, right? I mean, ultimately, a business is about revenue. And so if one of the problems you have in your business is this one area of the app, we're in constant demand, add this, add this, add this, add more features, right? And we can't because every time we add a feature, we're afraid to hit the button to deploy because something's going to break. Right. So there's too much coupling throughout the whole solution, which is your monolith problem. And not only that, we have to decouple it the right way so that just this life cycle that is actually the place the business makes money can be more agile on its own with its own team from the business down through delivery and DevOps. And so that's a big piece of it too, right? So all of those things matter that, that you mentioned too, Carl. Right. It's the scale, it's the distribution, and it's the, the ability to deliver features. And then I guess there's the manageability part. Like, if you think about doing a message-based architecture, which can give you eventual consistency patterns and really amazing properties with scale and visibility and audit, that doesn't come for free, right? You have to need that, first of all. And second of all, it's effort to get there. But once you do, that one microservice domain suddenly doesn't feel so unmanageable. Like, okay, I can Mm. put in my head, right? But the rule about my microservice, it should fit in your head. So it should fit in my head that this design, right? Here's a list of messages that matter for this domain. Let's call it, I don't know, security and login or permissions and authorization. Those are two domains. And these are the list of messages that happen. Login, log out, locked out, unlocked, whatever. And this is the data model that we're projecting from events. And these are the audit trail we expect from the events. And this is the UI and this is the API in the middle. And these are the business rules. So it's now a manageable thing that can evolve on its own away from the rest of the system. Absolutely. And Michelle, give us one moment here while we listen to this very important message. When you're building an application, you need it to be fast, secure, and always evolving. With Kubernetes Engine on the Google Cloud Platform, developers can deploy fully managed, containerized apps quickly and easily. Google has been running production workloads in containers for over 15 years, and they build the best of what they learn into Kubernetes, the industry-leading open-source container orchestrator. Kubernetes Engine combines automatic scaling, updates, and reliable self-healing infrastructure with open-source flexibility to cut down development cycles and speed up time to market. Learn more about Kubernetes Engine online at g.co slash getgke. That's g.co slash getgke. Hey, guess what, Rockheads? Progress Telerik wants to send someone to build. So they're having a contest. Step one is to sign up and learn about the new innovative modern UI tools they'll be announcing at Build. By registering, you'll be entered to win a full conference pass to Microsoft Build, plus a $500 travel stipend. They're also giving away three Telerik DevCraft UI licenses. And for .NET Rocks listeners, they'll also be giving away a Telerik DevCraft UI license every week. All you have to do is register at buildcontest.pwop.me. That's buildcontest.pwop. Progress offers the leading platform for developing and deploying mission-critical business applications. The creator of the award-winning Telerik.net and Kendo UI, JavaScript user interface components and controls, reporting solutions, and productivity tools, Progress offers all the tools developers need to build high-performant modern apps with outstanding UI. Go now to buildcontest.pwop.me and sign up to win. 
And we're back. It's Richard Campbell, Carl Franklin. It's Donnet Rocks. We're talking to Michelle Bustamante in this surviving the microservices chaos. If I'm listening correctly, if I hear this right, I think you're talking along breaking down these services into sort of axes of volatility, that one team can work on that one thing and there's minimal coupling between the other services there so that when you make that change, it's not going to knock anything else out. Exactly. Yeah. And again, getting to that is such a fragile beginning because everybody thinks they can just break things up into separate APIs and they've solved the problem. But you haven't really solved the problem if you don't align those isolated microservices to something that actually helps the business. So, for example, if I go to customers, and I probably talked about this before, and they've got a whole enterprise worth of apps and off-the-shelf products and back-end systems and legacy database stores and cron jobs running all over the place, right? File drops. There's all kinds of integration points. And I've seen this more than once in just the past couple of years where they literally need to start from the beginning. Imagine this. Imagine you say, I'm going to turn this into a microservices solution. And you spend the next eight months in design to pull out a piece to start migrating microservices to build in all of this new way of working with your developers, with your DevOps, this new infrastructure you have to deploy to, probably with an orchestration platform, and then all the messaging and instrumentation and automation that has to go with that to be successful. So now you've spent eight months and you deliver feature one, two, and three, and it costs you hundreds of thousands of dollars and eight months of time. And the, and the business says, well, how did that help me? Right. Guess what happens to the project? It's going to go down the tubes. So the number one thing that you can do is answer the question, why are we doing this? And what will resonate with the business after this first investment? Because once you make it past the eight months, if you can say, we solved a big problem that led to either revenue or more efficiencies or solving some other pain point that was critical, then you can pack on the rest because now you've got your foundation. You know, this reminds me of doing web performance tuning in the sense that nobody cared until we didn't have performance. (laughs) Same with security. It happens all the time. People say, oh, yeah, I can just tweak that workflow. I understand OpenID and OAuth. And then, you know, next thing you know, they've opened up a security hole because they wrote some custom code in front of that that wasn't clear. So, you know, it's always easy to say, yeah, yeah, I've got this. But it it just strikes me that it's normal for us to decompose our services after the fact. Mm -hmm. That it's only when we have them all together. Mm -hmm. And we find out that we have coupling problems, that we have right. fragility problems, right. that we finally say, hey, we need to go through this architectural exercise. It's going to take more time, has an overhead. Right. But the benefit is future agility. Right. So so I guess my point that I was making there is that it doesn't matter till something goes wrong. And then you say, right. oh, I should have invested more in that up front, whether it be right. knowledge or whatnot or care, right? Or in the case of microservices or performance, instrumentation, automation, and load testing. So on the beginning side of microservices, it's make sure you're solving a real business problem. Right. At the end of this deliverable in eight months, make sure that the go live includes that you've already done all kinds of interesting drills against your microservices to see how the solution can scale. Because people are new to containers. They're new to container platforms. You don't just get that after a month of effort with a couple of guys on your team. But you can do it successfully if you take just a few services in this first launch and do all the things all the way up to the end, including the drills. And the drills are pretty critical because, you know, remember with containers, we have a new thing to think about, which is when I ship that container off to a orchestration platform, one of the things I have to tell the platform is how much memory, CPU, and potentially storage do I think that this particular service will use, right? So when I run that container, if I go over the hard limit, it's going to shut the container down and restart it. Mm -hmm. So if I have a memory leak, the benefit is I don't bring everything else down. But if I have a memory leak, I didn't catch ahead by just doing some simple load testing, then shame on me because now I might have a bad service out there that I didn't realize. And I could have caught that with literally a day's effort. Sure. And as are the drills you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Like it's just kind of part of 
the things you have to do to survive include doing yeah. these things all the way through to the end. You can't just say, I've got the design, I've got a platform, I think I figured it out. I mean, imagine I deploy to Kubernetes or DCOS, and I now have to understand what could go wrong with Zookeeper or etcd. So have I tested potential failure conditions and things right. that could cause it to fail to see if I can break it? Because yeah. if I don't know it yet, then I either need to hire the guy that for sure has already been through this before, or I got to learn it carefully by pushing the system hard. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But these are, you know, these are fairly arbitrary numbers, like amount of resources allocated to a given container and how hard do you have to be able to push it? Well, it's not that arbitrary, really. I mean, I, I think it's pretty obvious. Like, you know, when you're using, if you've got a container that's got to load an image and build some sort of PDF or report output, then you probably have an idea of the amount of size the images are and the size of the reports you produce. And you know, you're going to find out really quickly if it doesn't have enough because it won't be able to schedule the container, right? Because scheduling is a big part of the platform. It needs to see, do I have enough resources to put this container out there? So let's say you don't ask for enough and you just push it out there anyway. Then, of course, you'll start to see memory usage and things like that. And then if you don't put a hard limit at the top, then it won't recycle and you'll just end up eating up what's on the machine. So you could certainly go with don't put a hard limit, right? Right. But you still have to ask for a minimum. So you should learn what does this container typically use? And you'll be able to see that with the monitoring tools. And then you say, okay, well, let's ask for that as a minimum. We know that this container can't run with less than X, right? I need, I don't yep. know, a gig, right? Or I don't know, a, mm. something like that of, of RAM. So then, okay, fine. You got to put that one on a bigger, a bigger box. And then some of them use a fraction, right? Like a fraction of a CPU cycle fraction of memory so so you you whittle those all the way down because they don't need much it does mean you need to build some kind of load testing harness to be able to exercise these different bits yeah i mean i think there's a lot of common tools out there that one could use like jmeter mm -hmm. vsts had load testing tools too still do yeah and and there's a number of others right loader io and the list goes on so if you're not using load testing tools for your stuff then that's a problem in itself if you're in the cloud or if you have any scale requirements, right? Yep, yep, sure. And, and again, I think that you could look at microservices as sort of completing the cycle of, of what we should have been doing anyways. We should always have been thinking when I deploy, do I know what resources I need? The drills on my containers, do I know what causes this to reach some sort of throttle point? Hmm. Do I understand the distribution properties? Do I know how to rebuild my entire architecture if something fails? Like, so let's say I lost my consensus data. How do I re rebuild a new cluster and push those containers out there lickety split? So, you know, these are arguably things if you have a mission critical app, you're going to plan for anyways. But guess what? It's expensive to get to the mm -hmm. point where you've got all that in place. But once you do, doing new stuff is easy because you've built the knowledge of this in your team. So this is where we get back to, do you need an orchestrator or not, right? Not everybody needs to go down the full road if you just need a couple of services and you want to push those out to um, platform as a service, right? Like Microsoft has the Linux apps for containers, mm -hmm. then just push them out there and don't worry about an orchestrator until you really need one. But there will become a productivity point to where, you know, you have so many containers and so many things to do DevOps process that you're inventing new tooling to achieve those goals instead of using the tools that are out there and investing in that knowledge. Right? So there's diminishing returns at some point, but it doesn't mean you have to do it day one if you don't have a lot to do. And I know you've taken DCOS out for a spin and, and some of the others. It seems like Kubernetes is winning as an orchestrator. Oh, that's a loaded question, actually. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, because... How do you feel about it? Well, here's the thing. I, I think, as with all answers to all questions, unfortunately, it depends. And, and here, here's, here's the deal about it. Kubernetes is very, very popular in the space that we all run in as, as, as people working with containers. We see a lot of it. But if you go, mm -hmm. there's actually a link. I, I don't have it in front of me right now. Someone just sent me where if you actually go out to the greater Docker ecosystem, 
there's quite a high percentage of people using Swarm. And Swarm is actually higher up than Kubernetes in use. It's just that you hear more about Kubernetes because it's got a huge community ecosystem. Now, I'm not bashing it by any stretch, but there are reasons to choose different tools. I mean, we've got, you know, the Docker Swarm is open source. It's part of, you know, Docker CE, right? So it's it's yep. free, it's open source, it's part of the platform. It's close to the platform, so it's familiar dev and prod feels the same. A lot of folks that are just digging in, that's what they do because it's really easy to work with, right? The command line, limited surface area to work with, that kind of thing. Sure. But once you need a UI and a full platform, you know, some companies want a paid support contract. So you're not going to get that from Kubernetes. You might get it from a third party that sits on top of Kubernetes and says, hey, I'll support you. But Uh in that case, why not go to Docker Enterprise Edition? Because then Docker has their platform that has a lot of built-in security and RBAC capabilities and features that other platforms don't have. And it's built for enterprise. So fine. If you're going to pay a license, then do that. And it can manage many clusters for you. And your clusters can be on-prem and cloud and distributed and, and manage those, right? So now you've got a tool for that. And then you go to Cube and Kubernetes is really popular. And I would say gaining a lot of popularity on the compute side, right? Plus you can mm-hmm. plug in yeah. your own schedulers like Nomad and other things. And so definitely that's huge contender. And because it's so popular as an orchestrator, even Docker Enterprise supports it. Even DCOS now supports it. And then, of course, mm-hmm. Kubernetes itself supports it. So now it feels like they're, quote unquote, winning because what's happening is everyone's realizing that some people are used to Kubernetes, but they still want the other features that the platform provides. So let's let them plug in their orchestrator of choice while still using our system for the other things we provide, like Docker Enterprise and built-in Docker Secrets and other security features. Or DCOS has a great model for you know data payloads, right? Because you can run executors, which are closer to the metal and not in a container. I, I have so much in my head on this. I feel like I'm not shutting up and letting you talk. So I'm going to stop now. <laughs> no, no. I, the only thing we have to do is uh, just do a little pause here. But I'm, I'm totally digging this, Michelle. But Richard... Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, must be that happy time ago. Yes, sir! It's time, actually, for me to debug a pesky function that's hanging my server. Oh. Uh, it's coming from this for loop. Let's see. Int funny equals zero. Uh, funny is less than gut-busting laughter. Um, funny plus equals chuckles. Huh. Ah! I found the bug. Chuckles is zero. Nice. <laughs> you did like start with funny being zero so that's only fair well chuckles yeah that's how many laughs you get you know yes it never increases that's the joke see funny never gets above zero there you go and that's about what's happening right now yes that's exactly what's happening right now <laughs> <laughs> you remind me of you remind me of the things I'm not allowed to say at home. Like when I say I don't have the bandwidth for that, my husband says, um, "People don't talk like that, Michelle. Can you not think that again?" And I'm like, "What do you mean people don't say that? I hear it all the time." <laughs> and I I think I'm learning that it depends on your audience. I don't hear anything. It's actually digital crickets all the way down. It's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from our friends at DevExpress to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. And check out their DevExtreme React Grid, built from the ground up to fully support all the cool features that come with React, like the virtual DOM and state controllers like Redux. It supports master detail, sorting, grouping, paging, and editing. You can get it for free on GitHub, but learn more and download your free 30-day trial of DevExpress Universal at devexpress.com slash superhero. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Frank Haugen. Congratulations, Frank. Yes. Golf clap. Congratulations, Frank. Frank just won the D-Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from our friends at DevExpress just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .NETrocks.com, 
click on the big get free stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. And, of course, we like to ask our guest, Michelle, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, gee, what would you buy? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And I never have a good answer for this, but I'm going to tell you, I thought I had a winner. I thought I had a winner because I'm I'm kind of a retro $6 million man freak. <laughs> oh, no. You just never knew, right? That is is crazy just last week we were talking about six million dollar man with scott hunter you're kidding me too funny okay well no no it's very funny are you serious so seriously okay well there you go so we have something in common i'm i i was thinking for sure it's going to cost at least five thousand dollars to get my hands on all of those you know retro dolls and and (laughs) you know you know they have the space probe and they have like i don't know what was that little incubator that he had to lie in? Like something for uh, a <laughs> yeah. bionic transport repair station, you know? <laughs> so I was thinking for sure that's going to be $5,000 and it's totally not. I mean, they're like probably 50 bucks a pop. So I went to my next favorite idea and that is, okay, so my son, I'm constantly like I moved to a house that has an upstairs, right? A couple of, a year and a half ago. And every time I want to find my kid and he's supposed to be doing his homework or, you know, reading and, and he's not doing what he's supposed to do at all. I have to always yell. So I got the Amazon Echo and I, I started using that as an intercom. So, you know, from downstairs, I can say, Hey, Juan Pablo, <laughs> you know, do your homework or stop reading or turn the game off or whatever. And that stopped working because he would turn off the Amazon Echo upstairs. (laughs) So I had my intercom gone. So I got this great idea. I totally want to get, you know, those beam systems that carry like video, like you're there and they roll and you can automate them from anywhere. (laughs) So like next time I go away, if I could just get one, honestly, they were about 2,500 bucks. So I'd get two, one for downstairs, one for upstairs, because as far as I know, they can't go downstairs. And I don't have an elevator in my house. So basically, I could from remote say, okay, roll it on in. I could see him and say, do your homework. And he'd be like, shitting his pants, probably because I'm away. (laughs) (laughs) What? What? Where? Yeah. Did I just say that? My kid, he's only nine. Yeah. So he might not do that. He might get a kick out of it. And then he'll roll it down the stairs and it'll be all over. But it would have been fun for five minutes, right? That's Gee, you funny. know, nine is a great age to be a boy, isn't it? <laughs> Wasn't it? Do you remember when you were nine? I remember when I was nine. Yeah. And that was just like you ruled the world. Yeah. 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 He, he's discovered lots of fun things. Uh, i found a website called toys you had that has all of the bionic man stuff listed out yeah maskatron and oscar goldman and bigfoot do you remember bigfoot yes yeah and what about the guy that had the bionic face like the robot the maskatron yeah 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 that's it yeah cool and then there was of course jamie summers and the fembots. <laughs> <laughs> Josie and the Pussycats. And the fembots were first by Six Million Dollar Man. That was way before, yeah. uh, you know. Westworld. Fembot. Yeah, right. And then they had the Porta Communicator stuff, right? Uh-huh. Mission mm-hmm. Control Center. <sighs> the Bionic Transport and Repair <laughs> Station. <laughs> Look at this stuff. You know, I'm going to go back in the back office and pull out. Geek man. Do you know it's like 200 bucks to go and buy the Bionic Man like DVD set? It's like 200 bucks to get the whole DVD set. Then you can't get it any other way. Like it's not available on Netflix or anything like that. I don't know if you want to watch it. I think your memories of it are better than reality. It's euphoric recall, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I get it. And that was another thing we talked about with Scott Hunter. Yeah, this was a conversation we had where it's like, look, you remember this way better than it actually was. Yeah. If you watch it, you will ruin that. Maybe. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's true. I'd still like to do it just for fun. Maybe my kid would like it. You never know. I don't know. Uh, There was a night when I was nostalgic for the Munsters. So I went to Amazon. (laughs) I know, it's crazy. So I went to, because I was was nine, right? I was nine when I was watching the Munsters playing hooky from school. Right. I went to Amazon Prime and I got like the first episode of the one season or whatever. And and I'm watching this and I'm kind of chuckling. 
and Kelly, my wife, comes in. She's like, what the hell is that? <laughs> I'm like, the Munsters. She, you never saw that? She sat down and she's like, oh my God, that is the worst thing I've ever seen. It's the worst show ever, <laughs> but it felt like a great show at the time. Yeah, oh, you know, yeah. I'll tell you what show I gotten into, which I can't believe I didn't watch when everybody else I knew who was a geek on Facebook was, and that's The Walking Dead. I just oh, finally man. finished season eight and now the new one's starting. And the, we just hmm. binge watched the whole thing, honestly, for the last two months, like eight seasons. <laughs> what do you guys think of the new Star Trek? Uh, I haven't watched it. Discovery? I haven't had cycles. No. Nope. watched three episodes and I, I kind of like it. That and Game of Thrones, I'm like completely addicted to. And Game of Thrones, mm. I actually did a keynote and I themed the whole thing after Game of Thrones. It was super fun. Anyway. Okay. Maybe we should get back to microservices. Fact, it was called Surviving Microservices. There you go. <laughs> I bet it was. <laughs> was winter coming? Winter was coming. That has to be the closing slide, of course. That's it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Prepare for winter. Well, I think we've talked on the sort of architectural side of, and I got to presume everybody's coming at this brownfield. Like, you don't get the luxury of building something from scratch. You've got an existing block of services and you're peeling off your troubled children, essentially, out of it, putting them in their own containers and running along. And I wonder how long it it takes to actually get rid of that old monolith entirely. Well, wait a minute. We have to talk about whether or not you're really getting rid of code or if you're refactoring it, because we all know you can't rewrite code and not make new mistakes. So, right. So you're wrapping it up. And I I think that's where we get back to there's a process here. Remember I said, the first thing is what's going to make a difference to the business? Don't do it all Mm -hmm. at once. Right. Do something impactful and get your foundation. Your foundation should include the design process you went through, the development setup and environment and procedures around building containers and pushing them to shared registries and getting them into a shared dev or test environment, promoting container images across the workflow, setting up your DevOps and automation, instrumenting your code with end-to-end tracing, which is my favorite, favorite topic because, I mean, there's nothing but nothing better than, well, okay, I can think of a few things better, but basically end-to-end tracing where you can find an error, click an activity and see how did I get here through all of the tiers of services that took you there, including through messaging, right? And if you set that up, you are golden. Yeah, it's also magic, but those used to be really expensive tools. What are you using to pull something like that together? Well, it's a combination, right? In fact, a lot of times it's just reusable frameworks that we or somebody on our team has built. And then it usually does have a bit of variety each platform that you implement it for. App Insights does a little bit of that, but you still have to wrap your caring for passing it over the wire yourself, right? So you still have to care for, oh, I'm going to write a message into Event Hub. Let's put a header in there that includes this information for audit, includes the activity, includes the user that initiated, includes whatever those things are, right? So you still have to care for it. It's another project. And if you do that right the first time, then all your other devs and future work can build on that and and reuse it. So it's huge investment and really saves you, right, in production, I think. That's huge to me. And then all those practices and that end-to-end tracing and maybe your messaging architecture, if you're using it and your proof of concept around eventual consistency so, so that you can build new views over data, all of that, if you do that right in the first eight months release, you've now got not only hopefully one business problem solved that, that helps to prove that it was worth the money, but now you've got the money spent that you can now build on and now take these other pieces of the puzzle and look for new business problems to solve priority in order and decouple those things from the code. And if you decouple it based on business features and value, then you'll find your way, right? Which parts to do first, Mm. second, third, and you'll start to tease that code out. And I'm sure there's a lot of technical goo in the middle we have to care for because it's not that easy, but it's a process, which is why you have to break it up into parts. Parts is parts. It also strikes me that only certain pieces of the app are going to benefit from being wrapped as a microservice, pulling the containers, right. and much less show value. Sure. Well, and everything doesn't have to be in container, right? I mean, most solutions yeah. don't actually need, you know, microservices, but what they need is some of these principles that we're talking about around the decoupling, around the reuse, around the ability to deploy this thing without breaking that thing. I mean, ultimately, that's the goal. But when you have a really massive solution with lots of developers and moving parts, 
moving to a more formal microservices platform play helps you to gain more in reuse of the DevOps, reuse of your whole workflow, because now containers wrap the code and you can have different environments, different developer platforms. You can use Golang and mix that with .NET Core and you don't have to worry about the web host anymore and which server is it because it can all commingle. Right. But it sounds to me the way you're describing this is that microservices are just not practical if you don't use a container service of some kind. Well, microservices is a set of principles guiding getting things done, but it does mm-hmm. typically involve leveraging the tools that make that more efficient, right? Right. So are you still microservice-ish if you break your services into smaller API surface areas and decouple the reusable parts that traverse all of them in the right way? Mm-hmm. I guess so, right? I mean, you know, we can argue the semantics of following domain-driven design and following all sure. the principles all the way through to who knows how many arguments across all the people. But at the end of the day, this is a practical matter. And making practical decisions means taking the good pieces you need and making the right decision. Um, absolutely. And the tool just makes it easier. Exactly. you be more successful. Absolutely. I mean, it's enabler, right? Because SOA yeah. left us with technical compartmentalization of reusable interfaces and components and services, right? Mm -hmm. But it didn't deal with or address, okay, but how do we aggregate data behind all the services? Well, eventual consistency. Therefore, some of these principles around event sourcing or messaging and CQRS and having every service own its own data is only going to work if you have the eventual consistency, because guess what? Sometimes you need to query across three things. How do you do that? Yeah. Well, you need a new view into that data, which means it's a new service in front of an eventually consistent, you know, data store. That may not be the answer for everybody, but that is a really, really damn good answer, right? For I need to grow this into new views. And so when you start to go down that road in a complex system, you've now removed some of the complexity of needing to decide everything up front. Well, you're always going to be wrong anyway. Yeah, you can be wrong and you can refactor and you can build new views later and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Which is why I'm a big fan of the messaging-based architectures and potentially event sourcing architectures with microservices because then you've positioned yourself that messages can be replayed in different ways across different stores, which can create new views, new aggregates, and new UIs in front of that without getting in the way of your purity of data ownership behind a microservice, which we need to isolate them. For the most part, these services are all going to write back to the same data store, right? Well, what do you mean by that, though? You mean the same data store like a SQL Server backend? I think that's the tendency, yeah. I think it depends. In fact, Mm -hmm. when you look at designing a microservice, if it fits in your head, it's very likely it could fit in your head and not need a relational store at all. And therefore, leverage, you know, a Cosmos DB in the cloud or some other reliable document database, right, for example. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain freedom with that that also helps you with dynamically evolving projections of data, right? So you could add fields and change the shape of things. But that's really hard to do across a very large system with a document database. The document size is important. But if you think about domain-driven design and microservices behind that domain, now a microservice owns one aggregate. That aggregate is manageable. Again, if if you think about something we all understand, a user and a profile and a set of permissions are an example of three different aggregates that relate to one another, maybe by user ID. So those are three domains, which might Mm -hmm. mean three different microservices, but I might need to aggregate those things in front of a reporting system of some sort that shows the user the profile and with what permissions they have. And so I would project that to another store. So now I can work with the doc database just fine. Yeah, you, you, and you absolutely need to be able to have work across those different data stores, pull those things together. Yeah. And obviously, when you when you start talking about security, there are secure stores for certain elements. There can be different secure stores for other elements. So you're going to have to yep. move between them. Yeah, and there and there could be such a thing as a relational database that is important for certain types of microservices. I mean, I think we mentioned earlier, like we have a security practice, we have a policy server product. I mean, the policy right. server product is Brock and Dom talked about. You said earlier in January, mm-hmm. but like our backend is is 
highly relational because of the nature of policy evaluation. So fine, we would use a relational database behind the microservice then. But right. it's still an aggregate, right? It's still one policy aggregate. Yeah, I don't think in modern systems these days you have all of the data that your entire system is going to need in one place. It ends up having to go to more optimal locations and yep. your views are composites across those stores. Yep, exactly. And if you have a smaller solution and you want to keep things simple, then you go with the simplicity of hopefully just one backend to manage because, of course, that's multiple technologies too, right? Mm -hmm. To be an expert at SQL Server or Postgres and then also a doc database, is it's more DevOps, it's more technology understanding, and but a, a large system needs that, so they build that into the plan. And then they have their BI and other processes around that, right? And I know you've implied this, but I think it's a big part of the DevOps story is that that team can own that entire microservice top to bottom. Yep. It's not three or four teams coming together to build something big and then the battles that ensue when there's problems. The more granular the stuff is, the easier it is to sort of diagnose and to give ownership to. Right, exactly. Well, guys, after listening to you talk for the last half hour, I'm still just as confused. But I know one thing. Michelle's really smart. Aw, <laughs> <laughs> shucks, Carl. Really? I'm only smart because I work with lots of smart people. So for many, many years, I mean, my own knowledge combined with lots of other really awesome people, obviously, that's a lot of years. We don't want to talk about that, right? <laughs> right. No, we don't want to do that. But what we do want to do now is uh, hear your joke. So put the kids to bed, folks. It's time. It's time. You got one? A dirty joke? I do. How about if I tell a clean one first? Because I think okay. this is funny. Sure. <laughs> this is one of my favorites. Although I can't really tell. It to, my son wouldn't get it, but it's actually kid clean. So a snail goes into a bar and he orders a beer. And the mm -hmm. barman says, sorry, we don't serve snails. And he throws them out. A couple of weeks later, the snail goes into the bar again and says, what would you do that for? It's <laughs> 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 <That's> pretty good. <laughs> It's like a hamburger goes into a bar and the and the uh, bartender says, "Sorry, we don't serve food here." <laughs> yeah, uh. Another one, yeah. Oh wait, there's another silly one. That one, um, a female police officer arrests a guy for drunk driving, and while reading him his Miranda rights, the female officer tells the man, "Sir, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be held against you." And he goes, "Boobs." <laughs> 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 uh, no, I do have a good one, though, if you want to hear it. Sure, go for it. So uh, this guy walks into a bar with his, you know, the whole bartending thing. It's just, you know, stuck there. Endless. Um, endless. So guy walks into a bar with his pet monkey. He orders a drink, and while he's drinking, the monkey jumps out all around the place. He grabs some olives off the bar, eats them, grabs some li limes, eats them, jumps onto the pool table, grabs a billiard ball. And, you know, to everyone's amazement, he actually sticks that in his mouth and somehow swallows it whole. So bartender screams at the guy, did you see what the monkey just did? No, what? He just ate the cue ball off my pool table. Whole. So he says, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. He eats everything in sight. Sorry, I'll pay for the cue ball and stuff. And he finishes a drink, pays the bill, you know, uh, pays for the stuff the monkey ate and he leaves. So two weeks later, this guy comes back again and his monkey is with him and he, and he orders a drink and his monkey starts running around the bar again. But while the man's finishing his drink, the monkey, you know, finds a maraschino cherry on the bar and grabs it, but he sticks it up his butt, pulls it out, and eats it. And then he finds a peanut, sticks it up his butt, pulls it out, and eats it. And the bartender's disgusted. He's like, did you see what your monkey just did now? He goes, no, what? Replied the man. And, and, and you know, well, he stuck a maraschino cherry and a peanut up his butt, and then he ate them. It's disgusting, says the bartender. He goes, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. He still eats everything in sight, but since he had to out a cue ball he measures everything first now <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you know, there's something in that about the scientific method and how you go yeah. about doing things that may or may not be the right thing to test yeah yeah that's about right <laughs> all right that's all I got. Well, Michelle, thanks very much. That hour has flown by. Thanks for being with us. I loved it, and I'm always, always happy to talk to you guys. 
All right, great. And we'll see you next time then on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a